Welcome to Double Deal, a series about organized crime in 20th century Boston. The stories of our central character, Richard Tchaikovsky. The criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement officers who ruled the streets. Nina and I will be your guides through the darkest streets of Boston, telling you the true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. Hi all, we're back today with part two of New York State of Mind. If you haven't listened to part one yet, the link is in the show notes. We focused on Raymond Patriarca's relationship with New York, and in particular, the Bonanno family in that episode. Today, we'll be discussing two men who were both originally from New England, but ended up members of two New York families, the Columbos and the Gambinos. Between Nikki Bianco and Butchie Maselli, our New England listeners are probably more familiar with Nikki. But for me, it's Butchie, another one of my childhood faves. When I think of Dad's Butchie stories, Umberto's Clam House in New York is the first thing that comes to mind. Dad would travel a thousand miles for a good white clam sauce and a big score. You're always trying to tease our listeners. Well, I'm hoping they stick with us through the end of season one and stick around for season two. Well, me too. As for Butchie, when I hear his name, I think of the swimming pool story. Oh, for sure. Okay, where do you want to start? Well, let's start with Nikki since he was older, but before that, we should give a brief history of the Colombo family and its origins since Nikki was a member and peacemaker of that family, particularly when it transitioned from being the Profaci family during the Gallo-Profaci Wars only to be united and renamed under Joe Colombo. That feud and let's say less than peaceful transition is what brought Nikki back to Rhode Island on multiple occasions and solidified his relationship with Raymond Patriarca and earned him a permanent spot in both New York and New England. A position he may later have regretted. The founding father of the Profaci family was then bootlegger Joseph Profaci. From 1928 until the late 1950s, Joe Profaci controlled his family with ease and without any challenge to his position. But that peace was broken and the family was torn apart by three consecutive internal wars. The first war began when Capo Joseph Crazy Joe Gallo started a war against his own boss, Profaci. Gallo, who was often described as one of the most fearless gangsters, was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia after one of his early arrests. Well, that could explain a lot about Gallo's behavior over the years. I have to share one of my favorite Gallo stories. In 1958, he was summoned to the office of then-Senator Bobby Kennedy during the McClellan Committee hearings on organized crime. Nice carpet, Gallo reportedly said after he walked into the room, good for a crap game. I bet that was priceless. Raymond also testified during those hearings. I have to share a Raymondism since you haven't in a while. I know. I've been slacking. Guess I'll have to top you off before the end of the season, though. Well, remember, this is a direct quote, so pardon the non-PC lingo here. Raymond told both Bobby and JFK, you two don't have the brains of your retarded sister. No wonder they had it in for Raymond. All right, enough of that. Back to the Columbos. Well, I have to interrupt you again. Raymond supposedly intimated that Jackie Nazarian killed Albert Anastasia, but Gallo always claimed the Anastasia hit for himself to anyone and everyone who would listen. You know, I still believe that it was Gambino who took out Anastasia. Carlo Gambino had the most to gain, and when Anastasia was killed, his family became the Gambino family. Well, we'll be having this debate for the next two seasons and into the next series. I'm sure this isn't the only one we'll be debating. Okay, back to the history. According to the mob rumor mill, the Anastasia hit was why Gallo moved against Profaci. Gallo was expecting a big payday for his alleged handiwork, but Profaci didn't feel the same way. And that's when Gallo started plotting to take down Profaci and make the family his own. 
But when Perfacci got wind of Gallo's plans, he decided to take Gallo out first. Hearing the news about what Perfacci had in store for him, Gallo made his first strike against Perfacci. On February 27, 1961, Gallo and his crew kidnapped four of Perfacci's members, underboss Magliocca, Joe's brother Frank, Capo Salvatore Musacchia, and soldier John Scimoni. After the kidnappings, Joe Perfacci took it on the lamb to Florida. Joe Gallo hightailed it to California, leaving his two brothers, Larry and Albert, to deal with the hostage negotiations. After a few weeks of back and forth between one of Perfacci's capos and Gallo's brothers, a deal was struck, but Perfacci couldn't let Gallo get away with what he had done. On August 30th, 1961, Joe Perfacci allegedly ordered the murder of Gallo crew members Joseph Joe Jelly Gia Jelly, Gia Yelly. You hate me for that. I know, I know. And Larry Gallo. Larry Gallo survived the hit attempt by Carmen Persico and Salvatore Sally D'Ambrosio after a police officer intervened. The Gallo brothers had been previously aligned with Persico against Profacci and his loyalists. When Persico chose Profacci's side over the Gallos, he earned him, himself the nickname the Snake for his betrayal. The war continued on, resulting in nine murders and three disappearances. In late November of 1961, Joe Gallo was sentenced to 7 to 14 years in prison for the murder of Theodore Moss. Moss was a Brooklyn businessman who refused to buy untaxed whiskey from Gallo. That case was also Nicky Bianco's first arrest. His occupation at the time of his arrest was that of a salesman. He and Anthony J. Cameron were arrested for consorting with Gallo. Their bail had been set at $1,000 each, and they were released the same day. This would be the la- wouldn't be the last time Nicky's name appeared in the papers. Certainly not. On June 6, 1962, Joe Profacci died. His longtime underboss, Joseph Magliaca, became the head of the family. Enter Raymond's least favorite New Yorker, Joe Bonanno, longtime ally of Joe Profacci. In 63, Bonanno allegedly had been plotting to assassinate several commission members, including Tommy Five Fingers Brown Lucchese, Carlo Gambino, Bonanno's in-law Stefano Magadino, and Frank De Simone in an effort to take over the commission. Bonanno wanted Magliacca's blessing, and Magliacca supposedly agreed. Magliacca was given the mission to kill Tommy Lucchese and Carlo Gambino. And who did Magliacca give the contract to? None other than Joe Colombo. And Joe Colombo had his own ambitions. Colombo went back to Lucchese and Gambino and told them both about what Magliocca had tasked him with. They knew that Magliocca couldn't have hatched the plan on his own. Everyone knew how close Bonanno, Perfacci, and Magliocca were, hence they realized that Bonanno was behind the plot. Bonanno faked his own kidnapping and went on the lam to Canada. Eventually, he returned and went into exile in Arizona. Magliocca confessed his role in the plot. His life, too, was spared, but he was forced to retire as the Profaci family boss and pay a $50,000 fine to the commission. And with that, Colombo became the youngest boss at the time at just 41 years of age and the first to be born in the U.S. Well, I've got another anecdote. (laughs) Of course you do. You're full of them today. Well, you're just jealous. Anyhow, when Colombo was brought in for questioning about the murder of one of his soldiers, he showed up at the police station without an attorney. He stated to the detective, quote, I'm an American citizen, first class. I don't have a badge that makes me an official good guy like you, but I work just as honest for a living, unquote. Classic. If you listen to episode 28, New York State of Mind, you might remember that Raymond Patriarca had an intense dislike for Joe Bonanno and directed all of his men in Providence, Boston, and the Springfield areas to have nothing to do with Bonanno or any of his family. 
Nina and I discussed the possibility of that animosity between Raymond and Bonanno as a possible motive for why Raymond allegedly sanctioned the hit on Teddy Deegan, as Deegan's, Teddy's brother-in-law was related to the Indelicados, who were members of the Bonanno family. Another reason may also have been Raymond's relationship with Nikki Bianco and his desire to secure a solid position for Nikki. Nikki was credited with the first peace negotiation around this time. He reached out to Raymond to help broker a ceasefire between the two warring factions of the family. We'll discuss that in detail a little later, but now let's talk about Nikki's early days and his family background. Nicola L. Bianco was born on March 21st, 1932 in Providence, Rhode Island to Angelo Bianco and Conchetta del Vicario. He was the youngest of five children. Both of his parents were from Pawnee, Foggia, Puglia, Italy. The family moved to Brooklyn, New York in the late 50s, although his older brothers were in New York in the early 40s. In January of 1950, Nikki's older brother, Angelo Jr., pleaded not guilty to charges of what the newspapers euphemistically called having carnal knowledge of a 15-year-old unwed girl. At the same time, the girl's father was charged with attacking Angelo at the police station when Angelo was brought in. The girl was from a family named Palmasano, who appear to have been the only Sicilians in the entire state of Rhode Island. I've been doing all this gangster genealogy the past few weeks, and so far they're the only Sicilians I've found. Rhode Island was a little Campania or something like that. The girl's uncle, Jimmy D. Palmasano, was later named in FBI reports from the Miami field office as a right-hand man of Patriarca. Supposedly, he had been working for Raymond since the 1940s, which is strange since he was never named in the Patriarca wiretaps. Unless his, his was one of the many redacted names, the FBI also had a wiretap installed in Jimmy Palmazano's office in Miami in the early 1960s. Another brother, Angelo Palmazani, was an associate of Carlo Marcello's in New Orleans. Well, now it's my turn to tease because Marcello needs some episodes of his own and we'll definitely return to him later. Oh, definitely bonuses on him. Back to 1950. In March, Anthony Palmasano paid a fine and the assault charges against him were dropped. The poor Palmasano girl got chipped off to stay with her aunt and cousins in New York. Then in April, another Palmasano cousin named Agostino Bucci was stabbed in the neck by what he claimed was an unknown assailant on Balbo Ave in Federal Hill in Providence. The charges against Angelo Bianco were dropped in June after the government failed to get an indictment. Exactly six months after Augustino Bucci was stabbed, Nikki Bianco was also attacked on Balbo Ave. Augustino Bucci later reported to the cops that he had been with Nikki just before the attack. He looked out the window and saw Nikki being held against a parked car and pounded by two assailants. Bucci said he and a companion ran out to intercede and got attacked for their troubles. One of the assailants ran back to a double parked car and grabbed a blackjack. The other man pulled out a 32 and fired two shots, hitting Bucci and his companion. Somewhere in there, Nikki got shot in the thigh. The other boy got shot too, and Augustino Bucci's younger brother, Edmund, was also taken to the hospital for a broken arm from the blackjack. Augustino's version of events doesn't sound credible. The Buccis were cousins of the Palmasanos, so why would they defend the Bianco brothers? The mysterious assailants were never caught, and Augustino Bucci would be murdered a little over two years later in a bar on Balbo Ave. Joe Buffy Bacari was charged and tried for that murder, but eventually he was acquitted. We had to get our dose of Bacari madness in. What would an episode about Rhode Island be without it? 
Okay, back to New York. Around Easter of 1963, Larry Gallo asked Nikki Bianco to contact Raymond Patriaca to assist him. The negotiations between the two factions were being handled by Larry Gallo and Charles, Charles Lo Cicero for the Profaci family for two years at that point, and obviously things weren't going well. On June 12, 1963, the New York SAC sent an airtel to, to the Boston SAC and Hoover requesting a verbatim transcript of any and all conversations between Raymond and Nikki from the wiretap at the Coinomatic. The Boston SAC complied and provided them with two full copies of the transcripts. The conversation went into detail about how many bullets Nikki and his men had fired and how they couldn't believe their intended victim got away. Several pages were filled with Nikki's account of how things were going, including Johnny Bath Beach, Charlie Lo Cicero, and his relationship with Carlo Gambino and how he couldn't trust Charlie, but Larry Gallo trusted him. Nikki was also angry over the slaying of a businessman who had given financial assistance to the Gallo crew. Then Nikki got into ancient history and began discussing Joe Gallo and his relationship with Frankie Martin, who then teamed up with Carmine Persico and were inseparable. They exchanged, the exchange drifted back to Lucicero and how he was Sicilian on both sides and Nikki just didn't like him. I can't. They all had Sicilian envy. <laughs> Where's the lie there? It's true. Raymond advised Nikki not to curse Charlie and the others that he disliked and rather to be nice to them as they might be of some benefit to him in the future. I'll give Raymond some credit here. On occasion, he was the voice of reason. At the end of their chat, Raymond told Nikki that he would go to New York to meet Tommy Lucchese in an effort to calm things down. Oh, another one of Raymond's covert journeys. <laughs> I wonder how many taxis and trains he took on that trip. And don't forget hiding in the men's rooms in the lounge. How could I forget that? <laughs> well, back to Nikki. As we mentioned before, Nikki was arrested along with Joe Gallo and other Profaci family members in 1961. The charges were essentially guilt by association. In 1963, Nikki was picked up on more serious charges after the shooting of Carmen Persico in May of 63. 16 men, including Larry and Albert Gallo, were arrested. Nikki was labeled as part of the Gallo gang and held without bail because of his previous arrest. Later that same year, Nikki and 17 others were facing murder conspiracy charges. The headline was great, 18 Gallo Hoods Face Murder Plot Rap. They were arraigned in court after six months of grand jury testimony and bail was set in amounts ranging from $25,000 to $50,000. Included in the indictments, along with Nikki, were Larry and Albert Gallo and their aunt. Nikki was charged with being one of Carmen Persico's would-be assassins in the failed hit attempt back in May. We have to include some of the other nicknames of the men in this tale. Larry Big Boy Gallo, Albert Kid Blast Gallo, and somehow Nikki's nickname was not Tony. I don't know where that came from. And then Giuseppe Joseph Fatso Magliocca, Salvatore, Sally the Sheik, Musakia, and John Johnny Bath Beach Odo are my favorites. What is with the Bath Beach? Like Bath, Bath like Beach, it's a section. You ever watch, uh, uh, what's his name, Jimmy Calandra? No. Oh, uh, it's Bath Beach. Okay, so it's a okay. section. <laughs> anyway, I want to know who comes up with these names, though. I'm more curious to know which names the guys used and which ones are bestowed upon them without their blessing. Great, another rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> <laughs> no more rabbit holes, please. Okay, in June, Carlo Gambino issued a warning to the Gallows that if they didn't come out of hiding, that battle would be taken to their wives and families. A heavy threat considering that was against every mafia rule, but the death toll was rising and out of control. 
On the 4th of July, Larry Gallo and his crew tried to take out then-Capo regime Joe Colombo on his way home from the golf course. Then 20 days later, while on his way to Joe Gallo's wedding, his best man was gunned down in Hoboken, New Jersey. Well, one of the more interesting casualties of the Gallo-Profaci war was Ali Hassan Wafa. Ali was an Egyptian seaman who used to split boards with his head as a way to bet with Joe Gallo. He officiated at Joe's wedding. Why do you say these things? Well, it's true. And he took part in the war with Gallo. On July 24th, after just returning from one of his voyages, Ali went to buy a shirt at a store in Hoboken. Upon exiting the shop, he was shot three times in the abdomen. He succumbed to his wounds two days later. The following day, Frank Lottieri was driving Larry Gallo's car when he was ambushed. He managed to escape death by crashing the car. And with that chain of events, the urgency to make Nikki couldn't have been greater in Raymond's mind. According to an informant for the New York FBI field office, Raymond Patriarca and Henry Tamilio traveled to New York City for the sole purpose of straightening out Nikki Bianco. On September 28, 1963, Nikki was allegedly made in Brooklyn. Raymond had to receive special permission from the commission as the books were still technically closed after the Apple Lake debacle. In order to stop the bloodshed, Raymond persuaded them to allow for the induction of Nikki, who would then become acting boss of the now Gallo Profaci family in place of Maglioca after the Bonanno fiasco. But Nikki wouldn't run the family solo. Their own commission of three to nine men were to advise him on all decisions until a per- permanent boss was chosen. According to the same informant, on September 30th, Nikki traveled to Providence for a meeting with Raymond to discuss various aspects of the family business and take Raymond's advice, and some two weeks later contacted him by phone about the same matters. Then, on January 9th, 1964, Nikki spoke with Raymond about the ongoing internal gallo profaci power struggle. At this point, Nikki was acting as interim head of the Profaci family. Raymond told Nikki that he supported Joe Colombo as the new head of the family. Nikki, too, was in favor of Colombo becoming the boss. An interesting side note from an airtel between the New York SAC and J. Edgar Hoover. In communications between the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and the FBI, the rumor that Vincent Morrow was an informant was absolutely unfounded. In fact, no agents from any branch of the federal government or local authorities to the best of the Fed's knowledge were able to infiltrate or receive any information from anyone in either faction of the Profaci family. Nikki was named specifically as being essentially unapproachable. Well, good old Greg Scarpa would ruin that track record. Oh, that's for sure. And the Feds continued to complain about Nikki's refusal to cooperate into the 1970s. On March 9th and March 23rd, Nikki once again reached out to Raymond for advice about internal problems in the family. On April 5th, it was believed that Joe Colombo formally became the boss. According to an informant statement, the ceremony was attended by members of all of the other families. Colombo was not elected by the members of his own family, where he held the position of capo regime, but rather appointed by the commission. It was acceptable to his own men as he was a respected member of their family and his own father was a founding member. The informant also reported that Raymond played a key role in negotiating Colombo's new position with the commission and verified that indeed Nikki had been made and later also played a key role in ensuring Colombo's ascension to the throne, so to speak. Colombo reorganized the family, replacing many of the older capos with younger men, including Nikki. In January of 65, Nikki was sentenced to three months in prison for the charges that were pending against him from the 1963 conspiracy to commit murder charges. Out of the original 18 arrested, the maximum sentence any of them received was six months. 
Nikki had been picked up on the wiretap at Raymond's the previous June, complaining that an unnamed they wanted them to take a plea deal, but that they weren't going to do it. His assessment that the worst that would happen would be a few months in jail was correct, and the journalist described the prison on Rikers Island as a sequestered oasis. I love the facetious tone of those days, snarkiness to the max. I'm so jealous. Of course you are. In September of that same year, Raymond's wife, Helen, passed away. Nikki made the trip from New York to pay his respects. The feds weren't the only ones with their eyes on Nikki. The IRS began tracking his income tax returns in 1962. He reported a modest income for that year. 1963 through 65, he didn't even file a return. In 1966, he filed the tax return declaring an income that he could hardly have lived off of. It wouldn't be until the 70s that the authorities would try would seek to try him for tax evasion. Nikki finally settled down and married Francesca Coates in New York in 1968. The informants who were privy to Nikki's comings and goings all reported that he had stopped seeing other women once he was married. On December 4, 1968, Colombo had a Christmas party for his men, including Nikki Bianco, Carmine Persico, and Greg Scarpa. During the party, he gave a formal speech, including reading from notes, listening, listing out the hierarchy of each of the other families, and providing the history of the LCN in the United States and how the first family that came from Sicily settled in New Orleans. Neckties were given as gifts to the men. Colombo stated during the party that one of the other families had an FBI informant in their midst. Now, of course, this information is being provided by an informant who was in the Colombo's own family, Greg Scarpa. I can't. <laughs> We're going to go a little further with Nikki's story today than we usually do. We've been cutting off around 1969 with most of our recent episodes, but since we're near the end of the season, we'll be dipping our toes into the 1970s here and there. In June of 1970, 35 men, all reported to be members of the mafia, were arrested in a sweep across New York City. Nikki was listed as the number three man in the Colombo family. Agnello Della Croce, the underboss of the Gambino family, and Natalie Joe Diamond's Evola of the Bonanno family were also ar- picked up in the sweep. How do you think he got the name Joe Diamonds? Well, and it should be Natali, but autocorrect changed that to Natalie and my eye caught it. But I don't know. Joe Diamonds, he obviously must have had a thing for diamonds. But At the same time, Scarpa was telling his handler that Nikki was responsible for organizing the picketing by the unions that summer between May and June. Let's jump forward a little bit to 1971. On June 28, 1971, during the Italian Unity Day in Columbus Circle, New York, Joe Colombo was shot and critically wounded in an an assassination attempt. He was shot three times, including once in the head by Jerome Johnson, who was disguised as a journalist. Colombo's bodyguards killed Johnson immediately. Colombo's men believed that Gallo was behind the assassination attempt because the shooter was black and Gallo had formed a relationship with Harlem gangster Nicky Barnes while they were doing time together. Earlier that year, Gallo had been freed from prison. Colombo invited Gallo to a sit-down. Gallo refused the meeting and supposedly relayed the message that he wanted $100,000 to put the feud to rest. Colombo, of course, shot him down, and a new contract was taken out on Gallo. Upon hearing about yet another contract on his life, he sought revenge against Colombo, leaving him paralyzed but not dead. Theory time again. The police, during their investigation, determined that Johnson had acted alone, but they claimed that Johnson had been at a Gambino social club a few days prior to the attempt on Colombo. The authorities said it was possible that Carlo Gambino ordered the failed hit. Supposedly, Gambino had a grievance with the Italian-American League that Colombo refused to address, even going so far as to spit in Carlo's face. 
I'm sorry, but I don't buy the story about Columbo spitting in Gambino's face. They were old timers and may have been killers, but protocol was protocol. Well, back to Jerome Johnson for a minute. Of course, we have to have a Boston connection. The camera that Johnson had in his possession that day had been rented in Cambridge, Massachusetts on June 27th. He returned that same day to New York City with a press pass, the camera, and a monkey in a cage. (laughs) Why do you say these things? Hey, he bought the monkey as a gift, but the recipient refused, so he dragged it back to New York City with him. (laughs) Anyhow, according to witnesses, he wasn't alone that day, and there was a woman there with him, but she was never ID'd. Columbo's son would later say that the FBI tried to kill his father, stating that Johnson would have known it was a suicide mission, so why would he agree to the hit unless the feds guaranteed his safety? Well, I know the theory that you're going to go with. There still wouldn't be a true peace for the Columbo family or the Gallows even after the hit on Crazy Joe. On April 7, 1972, Gallo was gunned down while celebrating his birthday with his family at Umberto's Clam House. A final war between the two would take the lives of 10 more men before the families were finally reunited. Since we made it to Umberto's Clam House, let's end Nikki's story here for now. There will be much more to come about Nikki in season two. Nina, give us Butchie's stats. Frank John Butchie Maselli was born on August 26, 1934 in Medford, Massachusetts to Frank J. Maselli Sr. and Madeline Gaeta. He had an older sister named Rose. His paternal grandparents were from Palermo, Sicily, and his maternal grandparents were from Avignella, Salerno, Campania, Italy. Frank's father did have an arrest in 1924 for illegal possession of a revolver, who he received a six-month sentence. Other than that, it appears he was never arrested, and he worked in a warehouse in his younger years. But she's mother worked for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts for decades. She and her husband went to D.C. in 1953 as a presidential elector for the Eisenhower campaign's Massachusetts delegation. In 1965, Madeline became the labor commissioner under then-Governor Volpe. That same year, Frank Sr. retired from the warehouse and became an insurance examiner. I want to tell the swimming pool story. The swimming pool drama didn't happen until 75, but go right ahead. Butchie was involved in a federally funded low-income housing project. He was accused of skimming funds from the housing project to build himself a swimming pool. When he was arrested on unrelated charges, a journalist went to the jail to interview him about the pool rumors. Butchie admitted that a construction superintendent had been diverting men and materials from the project, but he believed that the laborers were there on their own time. As the reporter was leaving, Butchie blurted out, you know what I really hate? I hate those goddamn phony politicians who take my money and take my favors and then walk around pretending they're better than me. At least I'm not a phony. All right, let's give Vinny's account of Butchie's early life. Vinny claimed that Butchie idolized mobsters and that his parents spoiled him. According to Vinny Teresa's tale, Butchie used his friends in the Social Security Department to receive the addresses of people who stiffed local bookies and loan sharks. Supposedly, he moved to New Jersey after having a problem with a maid guy in Boston. Vinnie Teresa claimed that he hooked Butchie up with New Jersey boss Joe Paterno, who took a liking to him and made him his driver. We can say with certainty that Butchie did work for Paterno and even relocated to Florida with him years later. As for Vinnie's tale that Butchie ran a hit squad that acted as a mafia police force, I'm not sure about that one. Butchie was also definitely aligned with the Gambino family and maintained his ties with New England. Well, I don't know how happy Butchie was being saddled with Raymond. Well, we do have the wiretaps from the Coinomatic to give us some insight into that relationship, and I'd say he wasn't thrilled. 
The other account of Butchie's early days was that he worked as a truck driver for the state of Massachusetts upon finishing school. Obviously, Mom helped make that possible. Sometime in the late 50s, he opened a toy store in Medford. By 1960, he had moved to New Jersey after telling his parents that he had taken a job as a wholesale jewelry salesman. But did Richie know Butchie before he left Massachusetts? I always assumed he did, and I assumed that that's how Butchie would later find himself tangled up with Jack Kelly. That makes sense. By the time of Butchie's first arrest in New Jersey in 62, he listed his profession as a bartender. Now, you know that I've always said that Butchie cooperated against his co-defendants in that case and in later years, too. Vinny told the same tale. Just look at the fact that everyone went away in that case except Butchie, but later even Frank Capizzi got sent up. Oh, you mean the same Frank Capizzi who later years when he testified during Whitey Bulger's trial said that when he heard people speaking English, his brain registered as a Sicilian? can't, yes. <laughs> Richie was wrapped up with both Capizzi and Butchie, and like you, I suspect anyone he was close to of having at least cooperated with the authorities at some point in time, if not having been a full-fledged informant. No argument here. All right, let's talk about that case. On February 14th, 1962, Butchie, Capizzi, and Louis Vicetto were arrested in New York City Hotel with $1,072,000 worth of General Motors Acceptant Corps bonds. Well, Butchie was also charged with possession of porn. <laughs> I don't even want to know why he had smut on him in the hotel room. I want to know how Capizzi found himself tending bar in Jersey rather than living in Winthrop, Massachusetts. Well, I assume Butchie invited him down there. Plus, who knows who Capizzi may have pissed off that he found it necessary to take off to New Jersey. On October 25th, a total of 13 indictments were handed down. The authorities claimed that the counterfeiting ring had printed upwards of $4 million worth of bonds. By June of 1965, all the other defendants had pleaded guilty except Capizzi and Butchie. But in August of that year, Capizzi's luck ran out too. He was sentenced to three years. After that case against Butchie, after that, after that, the case against Butchie vanished. His lawyer claimed that the government dropped the charges because their case against him was flimsy. Well, I already told you my theory, but he's probably got a Newark number or something. I would guess. Yeah. Um, So it's not in the Boston files. The only case Butchie would face for the rest of the decade was one for motor vehicle violations. In 1966, after racking up enough traffic violations, his driver's license was finally suspended. By 1969, Butchie was the topic of discussion in more than a few FBI 302s. With the murders of Rudy Maffeo and Anthony Malay and the so-called investigation into their deaths, Butchie's relationships with Raymond, Rudy Sciarra, Frank Venditoli, and Louis Minocchio would come back to haunt him. In addition to the heat he was picking up from his associates, an informant from the Newark FBI field office told his handler that Butchie was responsible for the murder of Alton Hughes back on July 22, 1969. Hughes's body was found with two 38 caliber bullets in his head on the side of the road in New Jersey. Alton had been robbing the homes of local wise guys since at least 62 and obviously that didn't go over well with them. And if that wasn't enough, Butchie's past dealings with Vinnie Teresa would also turn the spotlight on to what he had been up to. Our next episode will be dedicated to the bond scams that Teresa, Butchie, and another one of my favorites, Mavin Kaga, were involved in. If you listen to episode 38, The Nightlight, you might recall that Phil Wagenheim and Ralph Lamatina were under investigation in 1968 for a loan scheme that involved those very same bonds. Standard oil debenture bonds, no less, but we'll wait for next week to get into that story. It's the same case that would see Vinnie Teresa finally labeled as what he was, a rat. 
And Butchie will be back at the end of this season and the beginning of season two as part of Jack Kelly's Revenge. Thank you all for listening, as always, and enjoy your 4th of July celebrations. Bye. Bye. Double Deal, true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies.